We started a new series last week in 1 Peter. Um, we're going to continue that as we look at the second half of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 this morning. It may be helpful to have your Bibles open in front of you to follow along. But last week, Robert introduced us to the letter by showing us how Peter starts the letter with this wonderful retelling of the gospel. He begins writing to these strangers and aliens, to these exiles, by telling them about this wonderful, loving hope that they have been born into. He begins by telling his readers what Christ has done for them before he begins to call them to what they should do for Christ. That's really important because the gospel will always say done before it ever says do. As we come to consider our passage this morning, and in fact, as we come to consider the rest of Peter's letter, it's really important we hold this in the back of our mind. That everything Peter calls God's people to do is rooted in what has been done for them already in Christ. As Christians, Peter says, we are to live holy and obedient lives. Lives that honour God, not so that God will accept us, but because he has loved us and gave himself for us. And now we stand accepted in Christ. One writer calls this the grammar of the gospel. I don't know if you've ever tried to learn a language. I'm not a linguist. I struggle with it at best. And the older I get, the harder learning a new language seems to be. But whenever it comes to learning languages, generally I can learn the vocabulary. I can memorize the words and roughly remember what they mean. Even if it means using silly little rules, I can do that. I can learn the words. But it all breaks down for me. And I guess for lots of people, whenever it comes to trying to learn the grammar of a new language, the order the words need to go in for them to make sense. You see, I can learn all the right words, but if I don't know how to use them in a sentence, or the order they need to go in, then it's not much use. You can know all the vocabulary, but if you can't put it together, then what do we do? And that's a real danger for us as Christians. Because we can know all the vocabulary of the gospel. We can know all the correct terms. We can have come to church and we can understand. We can use them. We can talk about being born again, about being saved, about being redeemed. But if we don't understand the grammar of the gospel, then those terms don't make much sense. Someone has put it like this. They said, the grammar of religion says, if I obey, God will love me. But the grammar of the gospel says, because God loves me, I will obey. That little grammatical rule is vital for us to remember as much as A before B except after B. I am not very good at English grammar either. But those little grammatical rules that you learnt in school are vital. And those grammar rules we learn about the gospel are also vital. Because a very real danger for us as Christians is that we forget the grammar of the gospel and we remember the grammar of religion. We think that God will love us more, that God does love us more based on our good works. That can lead us to be puffed up with pride as we go through each day and think, God must be very pleased with me today. I read two chapters of my Bible. Or we can think that maybe our salvation is a little bit 
like those old set of scales where all the wrong things we do each day is piled up on one side. And we just hope that we can manage to do enough good things to balance them out or maybe even tip the scales in our favour and then God will be happy with us. That's the grammar of religion. It reverses the grammar of the gospel. Someone once put it like this very helpfully. Our good works are the fruit of faith in Christ, not the root. Our good works are the fruit of faith in Christ, not the root. They are the result of having new life in Christ, not the reason we have that new life. Tim Keller says this, God's salvation does not come in response to a changed life, but a changed life comes in response to the salvation offered as a free gift. See, understanding the grammar of the gospel is essential to properly understanding everything that Peter will go on to say in his letter. Because he's saying, we are to be holy because we have been redeemed. Not to be holy so that we will be redeemed. That is because we are already God's children, Peter says, that we are to live obedient lives and turn away from our old way of living. It is because we have been adopted into God's family that we are to live out these family values, that we are to bear that family resemblance. Last week, Robert spoke to us about our identity as strangers and aliens in the world. He talked about how often we will feel out of place, like we just don't fit in. But Robert closed the sermon last week with a very important warning. It was a warning that we can all become so well adjusted to our surroundings, so well adjusted to what's going on around us, that actually we fail to stand out. We become a little bit like where's Wally in the picture. We're no longer distinct. So for a few moments this morning, what I want us to do is to see how we are to be distinct. How are we to live as strangers and aliens in the world? I wonder how you would finish this sentence. Christians should be kind, loving, caring, compassionate, generous, quiet. Peter fills the blank with one word. He says we are to be holy in all that we do. So we thought about with the children earlier that term of holiness is often thought about in terms of God setting things or people apart. In the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, the Peter quotes here, it was used to talk about the items that were used in temple worship. The priests were to be holy. They were set apart for a specific job. One writer puts it like this. Biblical holiness entails a person's righteousness, justice, and separation from sin. If we are to be holy, we are to be set apart from this world for God. To be holy then is to be set apart. But throughout Christian history, this idea of set apartness or separation has been misunderstood and in some ways misused. Some people have interpreted it as we should withdraw completely from the physical world around us. We should live in convents and caves and have nothing to do with the outside world. Others, while not going to that extreme, have taken it that Christians should have no contact at all with non-believers. We should work with, talk with, live with, and only interact with other non-believers. 
But both these attitudes miss Peter's point. Dan Durrani puts it like this. He says we are strongest as Christians when we know how to separate from worldliness while staying engaged in the world. We are strongest as Christians when we know how to separate from worldliness but stay engaged in the world. To be set apart is not to be pulled away, but to be distinct and different like we thought earlier, like salt and light. We might say that we are to be in the world, but not off the world. We are to engage with culture, but culture is not to influence us on journey. Peter gives two very specific ways at the end of chapter one of how we are to live this distinct life. It's how we are to be strangers and aliens. First of all, he says we are to live as obedient children of our Heavenly Father. And secondly, he says we are to love one another. So firstly, living as obedient children. If you look down at verse 17, Peter says, Live out your time as foreigners in reverent fear. The fear of God is one of those terms that sounds strange in our modern Western ears, doesn't it? It makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Should we really fear God? Should I be afraid of God? But as we read through the Old Testament, we get a picture of what this fear of God is about. In Job, we read that the fear of God is wisdom. In Proverbs, we're told at the beginning of knowledge, it's a fountain of life. In Ecclesiastes, we're told the fear of God is in fact the whole duty of man. Isaiah talks about it being a treasure. See, the fear of God is not something that makes us afraid, but in fact it is something that makes us wise and brings us life. Peter is not saying here that we are to fear God in the way we would fear a tyrant. We are not to be scared of him, but rather we are to fear God in the way we would show honour and respect as faithful children to loving parents. One writer puts it like this. Fear is not the same thing as being scared. Fear helps preserve the Christian's assurance of faith, confident hope, joy in God, and a sweet fellowship with him. A spirit of reverential fear towards our Heavenly Father is an essential ingredient in the Christian that's what it means to be set apart for the Lord. It is to live in reverential fear of our Heavenly Father. We are called to live lives that submit to His will. To live in a conscious awareness of His presence. And willing obedience to His commands. Confident in the knowledge that all He calls us to and commands us to do is for our good. See, just as loving parents will put up boundaries give rules to their children in order to give them healthy fear. They'll encourage them when they come near the road to have a healthy fear of traffic. So God wants us to have a healthy fear and he has given us boundaries to show us how we are to live as strangers and aliens in the world. The truth is we all live for the approval of someone or something. I wonder who it is we're trying to impress. Do we even know? Are we trying to impress our partners, our prospective partners, our friends, our work colleagues, our bosses, our followers on social media? 
Peter says, we are to live for an audience of one. The question that he poses to us is, do we fear God or will we fear man? It is God we are to seek to place daily with our actions and our attitudes. We are to live according to his plan, according to his commands. And when we do that, we will stick out like a sore thumb in this world. As we seek to engage in this world with the upside down calls of Jesus' kingdom. As we turn the other cheek. As we go the extra mile. As we show kindness even where it is undeserved. Whenever we sacrifice for the good of others. Often living in fear of God and obedience to him will mean being set apart. Being different being strangers in the world. But secondly, Peter says we're to live set apart lives to how we treat each other. Not just by how we relate to God, but how we relate to each other. We're to love one another deeply from the heart. Jesus said something similar in John 13. He said that everyone would know that we are his disciples if we love one another. Holy lives are exemplified by obedience to God and love for each other. Loving one another is one of those topics that's really easy to preach about behind a pulpit, but much more difficult to practice where we're in the nitty and gritty of life. See, the truth is that some people are really easy to love. Some people are like us. They look like us. They speak like us. They act like us. They share our interests. Maybe if we're really lucky, they even share our opinions. So we can validate them, we can love them easily. But others are harder to love. Maybe because they're different to us. Maybe because they have odd little quirks. Maybe because they have weird, little, annoying habits. Maybe we're the people who are hard to love because of our odd little quirks and strange little habits. But notice Peter's call here is to love each other. It's not a call to simply love those who are like us, to love most people. In fact, it's not just a surface call to love at all. Peter does not call us in the church to a kind of tolerance, to put up with each other. But actually, he says, we are called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ deeply from the heart. We're deeply there has a very profound meaning. Often it's translated in relation to prayer. Or it might say we are to prayer fervently or we are to pray constantly. It's the same root word. So the idea behind this idea of deeply loving each other is an idea that we will love and persist in love. Even when people are hard to love, even when people resist our love, we will go on loving and loving. It means that we are to be constant and turning the other cheek to each other. It means we are to be constant in giving each other the benefit of the doubt rather than assuming the worst. It means we are to extend love to others that we wish they would extend to us. That's how we are to be set apart in the world, by having a deep and persistent and genuine love for one another. And when we do that, we can't help stand out as distinct strangers of aliens in the world God has called us to. In essence, in a sense, 
But Peter writes here as a summary of what Jesus called the great commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Jesus says this is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's it. How do we live holy lives? Love God, obey Him, and love each other. But how? How are we to be holy in all we do? We must remember the grammar of the gospel, first of all. That it is because we have been redeemed that we are called to live these lives. How can we fear and obey our Heavenly Father by loving each other? Peter says in verse 23, it is only through the living and enduring word of God. See, Peter acknowledges here at the end of chapter 1, at the start of chapter 2, that it is God's word that causes us to come alive in faith. It is God's word and through the preaching and reading of God's word that saves us. And so too it is through the reading and preaching of God's word that we will become mature Peter uses a really powerful image to talk about this. 2.3, he gives us a really helpful illustration. He says we are to desire God's word the way a newborn baby desires its mother's milk. I don't know if you have ever met a hungry baby, but if you have, you will know that it is not a pretty sight. Hungry babies do not cry. They wail. They scream. Even good babies cry when they get hungry. But whenever they receive the milk that they've been crying out for, almost instantly, their attitude changes. They are comforted, they are secure, they are received, they are fed. They are relaxed and satisfied. And often, hopefully, they will drift off to sleep because they have got everything they need. They are at ease. That's the image that Peter gives us here of how we are to desire God's word. Because God's word is not an optional extra for us. It's not a supplement to our Christian faith. The Bible is not just something that will be good if we get time. But actually, it's as essential for us as milk is for a newborn baby. We need it. Without it, we will not grow and develop as we should. We will not be spiritually nourished. In fact, we will be spiritually malnourished if we try to grow in our faith without this pure spiritual love. Only this morning are we hungry for God's word. Do, you, do we long for it like a baby longs for love? Robertson, Uganda this week, 250 pastors swarmed to Uganda to be fed from God's word. I wonder if someone was to come to Colby and we have 250 people swarming to be fed from the pure milk of God's word. It's more than if you don't desire God's word. What do we do in those times when we feel spiritually cold? When we just don't want to lift our Bibles and read them? Here Peter offers some advice as well. Peter writes at the end of verse 3, we to taste that the Lord is good. I don't know if you've ever tried to spoon feed a hungry baby or a toddler, particularly. 
It's not always an easy task because the toddler or the baby is not always a willing recipient, particularly when they're moving off milk and onto solid food. Often when you try to give them the yummy nutritious food, they'll slap the spoon away, they'll pull the spoon away, or they'll close their lips really tightly so that nothing will ever get it. No seal, I think, is tighter than a child's lips so they don't want to eat. But if you persist, if you can get a little bit of food on the spoon just to touch their lip, just to touch their tongue, if they can get a little taste for it, you have them. Because the moment they taste the flavour, they will generally eat it all. Once they get a taste for it, they have it. Isn't that a powerful image of what it's like for us as believers? We can be so stubborn when it comes to God's word. We can knock it aside. We can turn our heads away. We can close our lips and our eyes tightly so that we don't see it. But whenever we taste it, our appetites grow. Sometimes our tastes are affected because we eat too much at once and we don't give it time to digest and then we just feel completely swamped. At other times maybe our taste doesn't develop because we try to snack in God's word. We try to take a little verse here and a little verse there and it doesn't seem to make much sense to us. Psalm 1 talks about the person who meditates on God's word. The image behind that Hebrew word for meditate is to chew over. Blessed is the one who chews over God's word. We don't smack on scripture but we feast on it. We chew it over slowly. We savour it like a good meal, not both at dawn like our dogs. We need to think deeply about it. Over time, as we savour God's word, we see our appetite for it grow. But listen, this takes time. There is no quick fix to living holy lives. No tablet that we can take that will automatically turn us into the person we wish we were. Loving and obedience to our Heavenly Father and loving each other does not come easily. It is formed over a life submitted to God's will and sustained by God's word. That's why we must make reading and meditating on the scripture a habit of our daily lives because we are prone to forget the grammar of the gospel. We need to turn to God's word to be reminded of the grammar of the gospel. To be reminded of that wonderful truth that we are not transformed by what we do, but we are transformed by Christ, and therefore we live holy lives for Him. God's love for us is not increased when we read His Word, but whenever we read it, when we meditate on it, when we hear it preached, we get a taste for it. As we get a taste for it, our appetite grows. We desire it more and more. And we are slowly nurtured and strengthened in our faith, just as a baby is slowly nurtured and brought up in strength. Our desires are over time transformed and we become more mature. No one expects a baby to become mature overnight. So it is as Christians, our life is patterned on this long, slow road of obedience. Eugene Peterson took Nietzsche's famous quote, and said Christian discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. Often we want to take the shortcut, but there is no shortcut in sanctification. The Westminster Catechism reminds us 
Sanctification is God's work in us, where we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and are enabled more than more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness, so that we can be holy in all we do. This is not an instant transformation, but it is a long way.